Welcome to the Beehive Capital Show. I'm Douglas Abusu. As always, I'm here with the Beehive Capital Management Team. On the Beehive Capital Show, we provide a medium for the startup ecosystem's most respected and trusted leaders to share their insight so entrepreneurs and investors can flourish, even during these trying times. Kim Furlong joins us today. She is the CEO of the Canadian Venture Capital and Private Equity Association, commonly referred to as the CVCA. Kim, welcome to the Beehive Capital Podcast. Thank you for having me. Super excited to be here. I'm very excited to have you with us as well. CVCA plays a very dominant role in the private capital industry and being a voice for many of the different stakeholders. So I would love to hear more about the CVCA, hear more about you and how things have been progressing throughout these trying times. Well, thanks for that question, Douglas. The last few months since March, I've been quite the roller coaster ride. I've had to adjust and go really deep on some certain issues that I probably would not have had to understand in as much detail had it not been for COVID, the shutdown of our economy, and reacting and following our VCs and what they needed in our PEs and what they needed in terms of support from us and support from the government. So, to take a step back for anyone who is listening to your podcast who doesn't know who CBCA is, and what we do. Uh, We're the national association that represents private capital. Uh, Within our membership, we have from the smallest venture fund at the pre-seed and seed all the way to buyouts in the private equity world. And to me, I like to think that our members accompany entrepreneurs on their journey of entrepreneurship from the moment you're sitting in your basement and you have an idea and you think, who's going to fund me? Who's going to be my partner in growth to the moment where you've built a successful company and you're thinking it's time for retirement and you partner with a private equity firm to have a seamless exit and a better retirement financially. As our PE firms have demonstrated their ability to grow and make uh, existing companies that are good, better, and stronger. So we sit in Toronto, even though we represent people from coast to coast in times that are not COVID. I spend a lot of times on planes across the country, talking to people, understanding their business better, and really trying to get a sense of what they're doing with their portfolio company and my role and the role of my team is to be the spokespeople for the industry, to understand their needs, to service them in terms of education component, networking events, data aggregation, which we push on a quarterly basis in terms of all the transactions in Canada. And most importantly, we advocate We advocate for the best possible ecosystem in which private capital can come and assist companies, governments, the economy in growing and becoming better. And with that said, I'd actually like to dig a bit more into the CVCA and better understand what the types of organizations are that make up the member base. So it's varied. We have over 270 member organizations that are members of CBCA. For your listeners that have interacted with our industry or for people that follow the venture and private equity side, we could think about Real Venture, Relay, McCroft Capital, that's in the Internet of Things. You can think about Golden Venture, Early Seed, and then the Georgians and the Inovia, which are the players that you would know in terms of real growth capital, Series C, Series D. Uh, and really uh, helping companies get over that, that threshold that makes them viable and potentially get to an IPO. 
We're seeing some growth private equity firms emerge. Lisa Melchior at Virtue Capital started a fund last year that is almost that threshold between private equity and venture where she's looking at mature companies, but are still looking for growth capital. We see a lot more minority investors. George Rosales at the Investment Growth Fund and a lot of our PE members with a minority growth position. And then at the very other end of the spectrum, you've got the Onyx and the Brookfield and the CP. PIBs and the teachers and La Caisse des Pôles Placements Québec. And so we talk and we represent and we have as part of our membership the full gamut of everyone that would interact with entrepreneurs and provide them not only with money, this is a really important point, but with the strategic counsel and the partnership in growing your company. And this morning we should talk about if, if there's entrepreneurs looking or listening to your podcast, potentially what they should be looking for, because it's not just capital. When you approach private equity or venture, you're looking for a partner. I completely agree. I think that's a great point for us to discuss. And prior to that, it seems that with the member base being venture capital firms, also we move on to the private equity side. And then even, for example, the pension plans that also play as LPs within this ecosystem, it seems to be a wide range of stakeholders. And so I'm curious to hear what the core value add, that common thread between each different class of stakeholder that each receives. Well, CDCA in its essence is a GP organization. We represent general partners, but we do have in our membership a, a number of LPs. And I think they become members for two reasons. They become members because more and more of those institutional investors would be doing direct investments. So in a sense, there are at time GPs. They also like to stay close to the GP community on uh, their issues and in a way, I think we'll talk about this from our previous conversation prior to getting together this morning, but they stay part of our community because there's a bit of a dance between GPs and LPs and the expectation of one and the other. And by being both part of the association, they get to have conversation on a regular basis about expectations of one and the other. And I think it's extremely beneficial for me and for my team to also have a varied membership. It gives us more insight as to uh, the interplays in private capital and what's required to raise money and to deploy money. Okay. So it seems that a major value add is being able to communicate with each other, be aligned on expectations, needs, and where each is going so that each member can better support each other in achieving their goals. Well, yes, but I think it's mostly the relationship and being connected to one another. If you're an LP, you can easily be a member of ILPA, which is the organization that represents LP, and they speak a lot about specific things to the LP community. Their presence within CDCA is about connectivity. And as I said earlier, uh, because a number of them do direct investments, they are at many times sitting in the seat of a GP and choosing and deploying capital directly. So in this year, there have been many events that have taken place. And speaking on LPs and GPs, I'm curious to hear how environmental events really impact the expectations that, let's say, LPs have for the GP community, as well as the activities that GPs conduct, depending on how events take place. A couple events would be the Black Lives Matter movement, the Women in Tech initiative that 
has also gained a lot of traction. And most obvious would be the COVID-19 pandemic that has really hit a lot of ventures in the ecosystem. Yeah, so let's start with Black Lives Matter. Let's start about women in tech. And I think the, the full agenda of diversity and inclusion, when I took on as CEO two years ago, CDCA at that point in time had begun under the leadership of Whitney Rockley, who was the chair at the time, who was a founding partner of McCroc, to do some work in anchoring CDCA and thinking about diversity and inclusion and for the association to really be at the forefront of what the GPs needed to accomplish to get to a certain point on that spectrum of diversity and inclusion that would put the industry, which is not isolated in terms of financial sector, of not having reached thresholds that are deemed acceptable in 2020 for what we expect teams to look and be like. It was still, and it remains, very much a white men's world. But I think what we've seen with uh, women in tech, and I'll be very honest, like two years ago, three years ago, when you spoke about diversity, most people were thinking we need more women. That was the focus. Like, how can we bring more women into the industry? But not only at the lower levels, how do you put more women into position of decision-making power at the partner level, people that had a seat in terms of directing the dollars and the investment and not just being an analyst that would feed into it. So what Black Lives Matters has done, and I think it's a benefit of everyone, is really put a showcase on it's not about women. It's about so much more than that for in Canada. Natives, Aboriginal need to be better represented within the financial sector and many other sectors for that matter. There are very few Black GPs leading organizations and in decision-making positions in Canada, and we need to change that. And we need to change it, not because it's what's expected of you. You need to change it because it makes for better decision-making. It makes for better outcome. People that have different backgrounds will make and will bring diversity to conversation and it's proven and I often have this conversation with people around you have these studies from the McKinsey's and the Boston Consulting Group and all these huge firms that spend a lot of time demonstrating that diversity creates better financial returns, it creates better teams, it creates better decision-making, and yet the progress is so slow. So from a GPLP perspective, I think the LP community is really seized with they are now requiring their GPs to demonstrate that they're taking steps to be diverse and then be inclusive. The inclusive part is one that's often left out because you think, okay, I'm just going to hire differently. I'm going to put people of color and women on my team and the work will be done. But I think people are realizing that if you don't build the environment for a diverse group to come together, bring their own selves and really shine in an environment where they feel that they're themselves and comfortable, that portion of the equation, if not fully understood, just leads that group creation to eventually fall apart because people will not stay in an environment where they don't feel like they can succeed. So what we've seen is actual real directions from the LPs to the GPs. And it's powerful because if you don't fulfill those requirements, then the money doesn't flow. An LP will not invest in a fund that they deem not diverse enough or not having taken the steps to create teams that are diverse and inclusive. So it's just beginning. I can't say that we're seeing like immense impact today, but I can tell you that it's anchored deep. And it, to me, doesn't feel like a public relations exercise. When I speak to our LPs that are members, they are very much committed to using the power that they have to bring change. 
I think there were so many points touched on there because again, going back to the inclusion aspect, right? If you're hiring more people of color, more women into the organization, but there is no inclusion, that doesn't actually lead to diversity in thought, being yourself, being able to mm-hmm. express beliefs or thoughts that you have that you've gained through your very unique experiences. Instead, you're there, but you're quiet. So it's a very, very important point. And then I feel that it's all very progressive. You need to have individuals in positions where you can make decisions and set incentives which guide behavior and when you don't have the diversity and inclusion of individuals in that capacity there then becomes ripple effects going forward where you're not able to cause that change so i think there were very great points that were mentioned And with that said, that's one aspect of LP expectations and GP activity. And I'm curious to also hear on the front of COVID-19, how that has actually impacted LP expectations and GP activity. Well, COVID has been quite the journey, and I think our members have followed the the journey that many other in the Canadian marketplace have followed. March was a moment of reflection on what their portfolios look like, how well capitalized companies were, what they needed, and really staying close to their founders and management team to understand the needs of the portfolio companies. And that took a number of weeks to really identify the weaknesses. I look at the business models, and a lot of them to their credit, have pivoted and used this moment of COVID that is a moment of severe disruption in terms of supply chains, consumer behavior, and going back to what I was saying earlier of our members not being only capital, they are partners in the business strategies and deployment of capital. And so I think they really helped with their portfolio companies to see how do they work together to get through this crisis. And I think everyone from the moment Uh, COVID hit, understood that in order to get through something like this, most portfolio companies would need at least 18 to 24 months of runway in terms of cash in the bank to be able to weather the storms. And then the journey of CBCA in terms of our advocacy with government and what we asked for just compounded in terms of the wage subsidy, matching programs, shred, and the different things that we called on the government to do solidified, uh, I think, and brought some calmer waters than what we saw in late March, early April. If you think GPs and COVID today, I think the fact that the government has agreed to have wage city be extended for the foreseeable future of the next few months until I believe next spring or next summer, that brings confidence to some that there's going to be some relief. And it's really, how are you pivoting? How are you adjusting your business model? And at a time which is uber stressful and it can really put a lot of stress entrepreneurs, especially at every stage, I was going to say at the early stage, every stage of your journey, what it does do is put a question to you of, is my business model resilient? Have I been too safe? How can I adjust? How can I reinvent? How can I pivot to raise up to this moment of disruption? And we've seen a lot of examples of companies that are actually extremely well and have either fine-tuned or pivoted their business models. There was a letter written to Mary NG in terms of advocating for changes that were made. And it seems that this is one of the core value as of the CVCA being able to speak on behalf of the private capital industry. So these asks were made in terms of shred the wage subsidy, correct? Yes, wage subsidy, matching program with BDC, convertible notes. 
And then these programs were actually implemented in a very short manner of time. And so going forward, how do you anticipate these changes or uh, effects playing out into the market? I'll say this. I've given this compliment to the government. I've been in government. I've been both an official and a political aide in Ottawa. What we saw in March, April, and May in the ability of the government to forward programs in a rapid manner, take feedback on a regular basis and readjust the programs to ensure that companies and entrepreneurs and Canadians were getting exactly what they needed was something I'd never seen. Because usually the government makes a decision. And once the decision has been announced, they anchor themselves in that decision. Because if they don't, anyone who wants to see a tweak or wants to see a change or wants to see an addition lines up and says, well, you didn't do this for me and that. And usually it's complex for government and they usually make a decision and stay very anchored there. They did not do that this year. They were very agile and open to feedback. And CDCA, as I said earlier, we advocate. And in many ways, we are the connector of this industry with governments and policymakers and stakeholders in terms of aggregating what our members want, need, and believe. That's not to say that everyone always agrees 100%, but as a majority of our members give us the green light in terms of some of the positions that we'll take, my conversations with the government did not stop in March, in April with these programs. These programs were what we needed in the moment where everyone was wondering how they would survive a shutting down of the economy. Over the summer, what the conversation I've been having with the government and into the fall is how do we reimagine Canada's economy of tomorrow? How does private capital play a role in being a partner in that reimagination? What do we believe the ecosystem needs to build on the success that we have seen over the last 10 plus years? When CVCA started tracking data in 2013. That's the year that my predecessor, Mike Willick, decided that we were going to report to the street on a quarterly basis all the deal flow and track that data ourselves. Canada was seeing $1.3 billion of investment in the VC space. Last year, we reported $6.3 billion. We are seeing that Canada created more jobs than the Valley, Seattle, and New York combine in tech in Toronto. And even that stat dates from a couple of years back. The number of tech startups in Canada, Canada has overtaken the U.S. in terms of the intensity of startup at the university level. But on the flip side, we're not filing enough patents. The U.S. last year had a growth in patent filings of 8.9% in Canada at 1.1%. So we are seeing a lot of startup, but we're still in many ways a ecosystem that is growing. And my conversation with the government is they've been a strategic partner of ours since 2013. They did the VCAP and the Vicky program. Those two programs have been, in essence, the anchor of that growth from 1.3 billion to 6.3. Now, I'm not saying that you know, our industry needs government subsidies. What I'm saying is the presence of the government in the VC space means that all other policies that help grow and solidify our ecosystem from talent to emigration to R&D policies to patent protection 
and things that are anchored in policymaking federally, by having them be a strategic partner, they stay the course in a number of other spaces just because they're interested in our space. And uh, the government just announced in its last speech from the Trump that it wanted to create a million jobs. And we know that BC-backed companies are far better at creating jobs, far better at the innovation that they produce. So my job is to be a really strong proponent of our industry, strong proponent of what we bring, and to call on the partners that we need to make Canada the place that everyone's about. When you think about not only starting a company, growing a company, living, moving to, in terms of recruiting talent globally, to come and make Canada even better than it is today. Because I do think that we are, we're in the midst of a moment and we have to seize and capitalize on it. Speaking in terms of job creation, I'm curious to hear from the government's perspective why they or what would be the greatest benefits to providing the support and adhering to the policy advocacy and the financial involvement in accelerating this asset class. Like from the government's perspective, is it the startups being a source of a job engine or what are the core benefits from their perspective? Well, the startup community does create a number of jobs and high paying jobs. Like 60% of Canada's startup community is in ICT, information technology. And, and in order to be a VC-backed company, you have to be presenting an offering that's disrupting to the status quo. How are you going to be better than what currently exists? Like This is not a me too industry where you're just trying to compete with someone who's out there doing the same thing. You have to demonstrate that you are going to be different in some way so that innovation, that Focus on R&D, which there's a number of studies, and I saw one from BDC that came out a number of weeks ago that demonstrate that the R&D and quality of innovation that is produced by startup VC-backed companies is exactly what the government wants. The government wants innovation, better life for Canadians. They want rise in revenue and job growth and productivity. And productivity is always a tricky one, but the investment and the curve of a company that's VC-backed versus a company that's not VC back is very different. The one that is not VC back is growing, but you know that slope is not very high. At the moment where a company is started, and if you saw the graph, where the VC investment occurs, the curve starts to go vertical and more vertical in terms because there's a, an expectation that if you do, as an entrepreneur, look for VC dollars, that you're in the mindset that you want to grow this company. You're not in the mindset that you want to go on an horizontal slash higher a bit curve. So for the government, when they think about job creation and when they think that 80% of jobs in Canada are created by small and medium businesses, it is an engine of growth and job creation that is far more easy than looking for large capital investment from you know, the auto industry adding 500 jobs. And I want to be clear, what we're seeing is not simply Toronto, Vancouver, we're in Montreal, like pre-COVID, as I, I moved around the country a fair bit, we're seeing it in PEI, we're seeing it in Saskatoon. One of our members, Panache, invested in their first startup in the North. We're seeing it across the country. Last year, the biggest deal of the year for VC was Verifin that's based in Newfoundland. So it is an engine of job and growth creation that is not germane to necessarily a city or a part of the country. It can happen everywhere if we have the policies in place and the environment and the ecosystem that nurtures entrepreneurs, ensures that capital is accessible to them, and have the infrastructure in place for the commercialization and the growth of those companies. The government 
environment knows that. And our conversations are about, okay, so what's the best approach and how do we partner together? And my approach is always about co-creation. So our conversations right now is about how do we co-create the policies required to bring Canada to the next level. And tying this actually back to the comment at the beginning where we had said it would be nice to kind of talk about what startups can expect from GPs beyond the capital. When programs like this or policies like uh, such as these are set, it really pulls in very sophisticated investors that have very deep domain expertise in the industries or sectors that they focus in. And so I'm curious to hear from a venture's perspective and being able to achieve this high growth what are some key qualities, aspects, benefits, thinking that they should or can expect from their investors beyond the capital? Well, the first thing I'll say is if you're an entrepreneur and you're knocking on doors of VCs looking for capital and a partner in growth, don't be surprised if you knock on a lot of doors before you find that agreement to partner. But also I would say being told no is not necessarily a bad thing. VCs would hear thousands and thousands of pitch in a year and probably invest in four or five companies. So the amount of doors and the amounts of pitching that you need to do and the relationship that you need to build and to entrepreneurs, I would say, don't wait until your deck is fully ready to build a relationship with a VC. Like spend the time throughout your process of ideation to stay connected, for people to know it is a people's business. People invest in people first, especially at the early stage. So going back to the amount and the grueling process of finding someone that will invest in your company. Being told no doesn't mean you don't have a great idea. It means that the person that's hearing it does not think that he's the right person to help you accomplish in the company. And that's important because I often equate a venture investment to a marriage. And you would never marry someone that you don't know really well. You haven't had conversations about your values. How you intend to raise kids. Do you want kids? Is like there's a number of things that need the conversations that need to happen before you decide to unite. And while the conversations would be quite different with a venture capitalist and, and an entrepreneur, understanding what that venture capitalist has done in the past, how they've grown company, what approach they've taken. What are the expectations of growth? What are the expectations of growth at different stages of the venture? Uh, will they give you a little bit more leeway in the early stage of your company to pivot and adjust? Because there is a requirement for growth. It's not a bank loan. Like This is an agreement and a, an arrangement between two parties that they're going to work together to invest and grow into an idea and business model. So to me, for folks that are listening that are entrepreneurs, is build a relationship, get to know people, ask the right questions, do your due diligence and make sure when you take the money that you understand that this money comes with a partnership that is long-term. You're going to be dealing with this person on a regular basis for years to come. So you have to make sure that you've chosen the right person to be on this journey with you. Perfect. To close, I'm quite interested in hearing what you're most optimistic about going forward, given the observations, the initiated actions by the government and the performance of the implementations that have taken place. 
Well, I'm positive by nature. I have a sunny disposition by nature. So I'm really, really looking forward to the next little bit. Never let a crisis go to waste is what I tell my staff all the time. And to our members, I think they've seized on that opportunity. As we think about the months that are ahead of us, and we think about the opportunities in the past, when we've had an economic correction or recession, that's the moment where you see some of the best and most innovative companies, like from Shopify to Tesla. Tesla, to Facebook, to LinkedIn, to Airbnb, they all came at the bottom of a downturn. And it, then it takes about a decade before you see these companies emerge and really be dominant players. So to me, I am super psyched at what is Canada going to create in the next two to three years that it is going to be the dominant players. When you look about Shopify and what they did, a lot of people don't realize how long it took them. It took them a decade from the moment that they received funding and had an angel investor to what they are today. And the idea that they had in the onset is not the idea that they're deploying today. So being patient, being strategic, making sure that for all of the entrepreneurs out there that will choose this moment, because oftentimes in a recession, if you lose your job, what do I have to lose? Let's start a company to make sure that if that person and that company is a great idea, that we have the capital. So my conversations with the government is in the end, the VCAP and the Viki, the programs that the governments have supported in the past, they get a return on it. They see all of their money back and we can see through VCAP that it was highly successful. So it's really the government using that capital and parking it in our ecosystem for a few years until it goes back to them. So the cost to the government is simply the decision-making and choosing to bet on this industry. And the last two have paid off. So to me, it's let's stay the course, continue to be strategic investor in Canada's future and economic growth. For the companies that are out there, I say, be disruptive, be innovative. Many people are talking about this period as being the great reset. All of the trends that we have seen in the past seems to have accelerated because of COVID. So seize on the moment. Let's together as a community, because no one does this by himself, let's be connected. Let's talk to one another. Let's see what we need. And if CVCA can be of assistance in being the organization that echoes what the ecosystem needs, then I'll be more than happy to do that because I think that the potential that Canada holds is immense. And I think that private capital will be the engine that will fuel that growth. Beautiful. It was a pleasure having you on the Behave Capital podcast. I truly appreciate the time. Thank you so much, Kim. No problem, Douglas. It was a pleasure being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us on the Behave Capital podcast. We hope this sparked new ideas, aha moments, or raise your spirits during these trying times. If you want to trigger more aha moments to expedite your maturation within the innovation ecosystem, then sign up to our newsletter called Hive People. Go to hivepl.vc and sign up to learn more about the relationships and expectations of key stakeholders today.